Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone to episode two of season three of criminology so more if we had a great response from episode one the one thing that we do want to talk about is we had a sound issue uh was on my end with with morph's part uh, but we've corrected it so we should be very very sharp this episode and moving forward all right more if we got some more patreon shout outs let's do that we had Veronica Moreno, David Paulson, Jane Skelton, Amanda Hinkle, Steve Miller, Lucy Wilcox, Heidi Ortega, Michael Brown, Sam Lipson, Regina Polito, Chrissy Sullivan, Ian Gill, Craig Gannon, Terry Coombs jumped out at our highest level, Charles Middleton, Yvonne Byrne, Kimberly Christensen, Lisa Macronicholas, Lori Hughes, Marcy Duanow, Deanne Lopp, Amy Kay, Gary Lopez, Erica Hutchcraft, John Payne, Kathy Savage Davies, Laura Jones, Christina Carter, Elizabeth Polly, Courtney Robb, Cassie Reem Kent, and Leslie Woodruff. All right, I know a lot of names. We're still trying to get through Patreon names from when we had that time period off, but we're getting closer. So, Morph, let's do a quick recap of episode one. We covered Ted Bundy's childhood, and there's no doubt it was not a typical childhood. He had abusive family members. His own mother pretended to be his older sister, So all of this helped shape who Ted Bundy became after high school and as an adult. We close the episode detailing Ted's murder of Linda Healy. On March 12th, 1974, 19-year-old Donna Manson, a frequent hitchhiker, went missing from Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. She routinely left town without telling anyone and returned seemingly out of nowhere. Ted Bundy later admitted to decapitating her and incinerating her skull in Liz Klepfer's fireplace. Her body was never identified, but may have been located in 1978 during a search near Mount Rainier. Two unidentified bodies from the search were mistakenly sent to a landfill in Tacoma. Bundy told police later that he determined that her body had been found at one point, but she was never identified. Just over a month later, 18-year-old Susan Rancourt was abducted from the campus of Central Washington State University in Ellensburg, Washington. This was on April 17, 1974. She had been on her way to meet a friend. Her skull and mandible bone were found in 1975 on Taylor Mountain, and it was determined she had been bludgeoned. Years later, Ted Bundy admitted to her murder before he was executed. 20-year-old Roberta Kathy Parks was kidnapped from the campus of Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, on May 6, 1974. For the first time, Bundy went outside of Washington State to ensure his crimes weren't linked back to him. He spoke in the third person about possibly approaching her in the school cafeteria and asking her to hit a local bar. He was slightly intoxicated after drinking, but she didn't seem concerned when she walked with him. He made an excuse to get her to ride in his car and pick up something. Bundy drove to a secluded area, then pulled her out of the car and sexually assaulted the young woman. Kathy's body was later found on Taylor Mountain in Washington. Bundy had transported it from Oregon. It was determined that she had been bludgeoned to death. Bundy would later admit to killing Parks as well, and it was even reported that he laughed when discussing her murder. 
22-year-old Brenda Ball was last seen leaving a bar in Seattle in the early hours of June 1st, 1974. Bundy picked her up while hitchhiking, and he invited her to party at his place. Once they were alone, they drank together, and he claimed they had drunken sex before he eventually overpowered her and strangled her to death. But Bundy felt no urgency to dispose of her body because no one else lived in his apartment. Bundy took his time and performed several acts of necrophilia on the body. Brenda's body was eventually located on Taylor Mountain. Forensics later determined she had been strangled and her skull had been brutally fractured. George Ann Hawkins disappeared from the University of Washington on the evening of June 11, 1974. The bubbly and affable 18-year-old brunette was walking from her boyfriend Marvin Galatley's dormitory at the Beta Theta Pi fraternity to her sorority house, Kappa Alpha Theta, to study for a Spanish test the next morning. She spoke to her friend Dwayne Covey from his two-story window and began her walk down a short alley to get home. However... Before she reached her destination, Bundy approached her with a request to help him carry his briefcase to his car. She took pity on the handsome but helpless man who was on crutches. Once she leaned down to put the briefcase in his car, Bundy pulled out his crowbar and knocked her unconscious. He later told detectives that she began mumbling about an upcoming Spanish test and told them about a safety pin that held her jeans together, something that no one but her killer could have known. The next day, Bundy returned to the scene of her abduction when he realized his victim was only wearing one earring. He found police scouring the area, but was able to locate the lost earring and pick it up. Police ultimately found no evidence at the scene of the abduction. Bundy later confessed to killing her in a remote area near Issaquah. When police later on found bodies of Ted Bundy victims Janice Ott and Denise Nasland, two Lake Sammamish victims, an additional leg bone and vertebrae were found at the same site and they're thought to belong to George Ann. Here is Ted Bundy in his own words, detailing his encounter with George Ann Hawkins. What happened was I knocked her, knocked her unconscious with the crowbar. By the car. Outside and back of the car. No, and then uh, there were some, some handcuffs there, along with the crowbar. And... Uh, I handcuffed her and put her in the driver's, I mean, the passenger side of the car and drove away. Oh, no, no, she was quite, probably not that she was unconscious, but she was very much alive. So I went to the uh, freeway. That was it. It's a long time. Anyway, freeway. Uh, she was conscious at this time, and she regained consciousness at this time, basically. Uh, 
turned, I think I should have took the handcuffs off. Maybe that sounded like man. Anyway, uh, and uh, gee, is it probably the hardest part? I don't know. I know we're talking sort of abstractly before, but uh, well, we're getting into some, we're getting right down to it, and uh, I will talk about it. It's just I hope you understand. It's not something that uh, I find easy to talk about at all this time. One of the things that makes it among the things that makes it difficult is that uh, at this point she was quite lucid talking about things about some <laughs> so it's funny it's, it's kind of funny but it's odd the kind of things people say under those circumstances and she thought she said that she thought that she had a Spanish test the next day and she thought that I had taken her to help to me for the Spanish test. It's something to say. I'm sure it was that, that I again knocked her unconscious and strangled her and drove her into uh, about ten yards into the small grove of trees that was there. Cord. An old, an old piece of an old piece of rope. It's also important to point out that all of Ted Bundy's victims, for the most part, had a similar look to them, thin with long brown hair. Around the time of his killings in 1974, Bundy began working with a woman by the name of Carol Ann Boone at the Olympia Department of Emergency Services. Abbreviated DES, this was a state government agency involved in the search for the missing women. Bundy and Boone began an on-again, off-again relationship that would resurface after his final arrest in Florida. And we will talk more about Carol and Boone when we get into Bundy's Florida murders. But I think more if it's important to point this out now because this is Ted Bundy involving himself in the search for his own victims. And now we move to Sunday, July 14th, 1974. 
It was a beautiful day in Issaquah, Washington, which is about 20 miles east of Seattle. On that warm summer day, hundreds of people gathered at the 512-acre Lake Sammamish State Park to enjoy the beach, boating, picnics. One of those good-looking locals was a quiet, unassuming man who masked his evil intentions behind a white tennis outfit and a cast around his arm. Witnesses said he introduced himself as Ted. And you have to talk about Bundy using his real first name. Eventually, this is how investigators would begin to link his interstate crime spree. But many of the young women who had been approached by him thought he had either a Canadian or a British accent. He was charming when he asked for help, unhooking his boat from his tan VW buck. Most of the bikini-clad women on the beach refused to help him for some reason or another, but a petite 23-year-old blonde named Janice Ott eagerly accompanied him to his car. She was never seen again. Four hours later, a beautiful 18-year-old brunette, Denise Nasland, argued with her boyfriend, then went off to use the park's public restroom. Her friends, dog, and boyfriend waited for her until the park closed, then called police when she didn't return. Later, Denise's mother was interviewed by the police and told them Denise was not in the habit of leaving on her own. For almost two months, the young women were missing despite exhaustive searches by family and friends. On September 6, 1974, skeletal remains were found two miles east of Lake Sammamish and were identified as belonging to Janice Ott and Denise Nasland. Bundy was asked about these crimes while in prison in Florida. He told investigators that Ott was still alive when he kidnapped Nasland, and one was forced to watch as he murdered the other. The fact that Bundy made one of his victims watch while he murdered another shows just how demented his mind was. And it also shows how much he's picking up the pace in his murder spree. He's now kidnapping multiple women at essentially the same time. In a later interview with author Stephen Mashad, Bundy referenced the Lake Sammamish murders and admitted in third person, no less, that he drove his first victim to a nearby but secluded area under the pretense of helping him retrieve his sailboat. He made some idle chit-chat about the weather to keep her calm. He took Janice to a house where he had no fear of anyone interrupting their interactions. Bundy had stated previously in the interview that he didn't want to deepen the relationship with his victim. But the guy was a psychopath. It's not very likely that talking to them would have humanized them in Bundy's eyes. Once they arrived at the abandoned house, he used the fear of violence to keep Janice compliant. He tied her up, but didn't use a gag because there was no one around to hear her screams. Talking in the third person... He suggested that the killer probably return to Lake Sammamish again to find another victim because Janice Ott didn't fully satisfy him. Now, he doesn't really go on to elaborate on how he wasn't fully satisfied, but both women were dumped within a matter of hours of their disappearances. And on the day before his execution, Bundy recanted this confession. And he stated that the women were not in the same area at the same time. But this one's tough. There's little known about these brutal crimes beyond what Bundy told police and what was found at the dump site. After he completed the kidnap, rape, and murders of Janice Ott and Denise Nasland, Bundy realized he had taken too many risks. This is probably why we wouldn't hear about any other double kidnappings happening again during Bundy's future murders. Bundy admitted, once again in third person, the killer probably didn't change clothes or change his appearance between the abductions because it would have looked out of place to people in the crowd 
who saw him in two different outfits that day. The first attempt to find a victim worked, so he figured he'd try again. He relayed to Stephen Mashad that the Lake Sammamish killer understood enough about the criminal investigation process to avoid leaving evidence or being suspicious. But there were people at the park that day that did remember Ted Bundy. It's interesting to note that Bundy didn't think the various people disappearing from their life would be a big deal. He seemingly had no understanding of the publicity that would occur in a situation like the Lake Sammamish abductions, where two women were taken from a public place in broad daylight. And you have to wonder, was this because his parents didn't often notice when he wasn't around? I mean, we know this guy was a narcissist. He was unable to view another person's abduction as alarming those around them. He was constantly amazed by the media, the way that they reported on missing persons, and how groups of people would come together to search for these people. Most intelligent killers who are trying to keep a low profile will use a fake name when chatting up potential victims, especially when they're surrounded by a crowd of people. Being the overconfident narcissist that he was, Ted Bundy used his real first name when introducing himself to victims at Lake Sammamish. It wouldn't have been such a big deal if the victims were isolated, but when he was seeking out women at Lake Sammamish in the summer of 1974, he gave his name to several women, most of whom turned down his request for assistance. To Ted, the lake was a great place for him to employ his ruse and outsmart police at the same time, but most of the women he approached remembered enough about him to be able to report his actions to the police after his victims were discovered missing. And it's this type of bravado in the face of potential witnesses that aligns with standard psychopathic behavior. The individual committing the crimes believes that he can outsmart the police. And this was definitely true of Ted Bundy. It thrilled him to dangle identifying information before authorities and still get away with his crimes. Psychopaths don't experience fear the way that most of us do. They constantly need more and more risk to experience any kind of excitement. And this is almost like an addict needing more and more of a certain type of drug to get their fix. And one thing Ted did love was being noticed. He enjoyed being the center of attention among his peers. And no doubt this was another reason he used his first name when other people could hear him. He wanted the notoriety, but at the same time, he didn't want to get caught. And some killers write to the media or call the police to get famous. Bundy wanted a different type of notoriety. He clearly got aroused from seeing his name Ted in the newspaper or on television because he was the only person who knew he was to blame. But that doesn't mean that other people around him wouldn't eventually become suspicious. His girlfriend, Liz, turned him in twice to the Washington police. And eventually, even his co-worker and friend, author Ann Rule, turned him in too. Ted didn't understand how giving his name could have been a bad idea because his grasp on reality wasn't always that strong. And I think more this in some way helps explain how he was eventually caught. I think we've really seen now to this point how revolting Ted Bundy's deeds were. But we should point out that Bundy was known to have done some what you might call good deeds. It's rare that a brutal, violent criminal will commit humane acts worthy of approval. However, there are two stories that have long circulated about Ted Bundy, suggesting he had a kinder side. In the summer of 1970, Bundy spent some time at Green Lake with friends, a popular park in central Seattle that offered trails, boating, dog walking, and swimming. Reports from that warm day indicate a three-year-old child wandered away from his parents and was later spotted drowning in the deep water. Ted jumped into the lake, fully clothed, 
to rescue the child. This anecdote has been repeated many times, and more than one version has been circulated. The original story was published by Anne Rule in her book, The Stranger Beside Me. In another instance, Ted was shopping with his girlfriend Liz when he took off running. Liz was surprised. She was confused. Until she saw that Ted was chasing off a would-be thief who was attempting to steal an older woman's pocketbook. And Ted would later receive a commendation from the Seattle Police Department for catching this purse snatcher. And this is a story that comes from Liz's book, The Phantom Prince. Both of those good deeds were recounted by people who knew Ted intimately. So it's likely that they really happened. But it also begs the question, how can someone so violent and so cruel save a life or rescue someone from a thief? And you hit the nail on the head, Mike. Prior to his criminal trials, Ted was diagnosed with narcissistic personality and antisocial personality disorders. Antisocial personalities are characterized by their complete disregard for others, and narcissists have an inflated sense of self-importance. Both of these disorders contrast any acts of heroism or selflessness. It's unlikely that Bundy would have done anything for anyone but himself. Still, although he wasn't diagnosed with having a hero complex, this could explain his selfless acts. People who strive for recognition often want to flaunt their bravery to those around them. In both instances, Bundy was surrounded by people. He clearly wanted to appear to be a valuable asset to the community. Bundy later sought recognition in 1984 when he offered to help the Green River Killer Task Force find their killer. It's evident that being perceived as a good guy and someone to be trusted was very important to Ted. He had a very difficult time revealing his true murderous feelings to anyone. It was far more important to show the nice guy persona to those around him, not only for his own self-esteem, but also to easily manipulate others. This probably also explains why he proclaimed his innocence until almost the very end of his life. It was challenging for Ted to open up and admit to his crime. So much so that in some of his final interviews, he is difficult to hear, whispering just loudly enough to be caught on the audio tape recording his confessions. But once we put these acts into context, it's clear that Bundy committed them primarily to help himself. Had there not been anyone around to witness his behavior, it's unlikely he would have lifted a finger to assist those in danger around him. In addition to doing good deeds, one well-known fact about Ted Bundy is that he was a dedicated Republican like his parents. During the 1960s and early 70s, he was active in local politics and aspired to political office. Bundy was a perfect example of a modern Republican and sought to reap the rewards of being part of the elite. He was clean-cut during an era when many young people were growing long hair and rebelling against the status quo. That never appealed to Ted. Instead, he wanted to achieve the things he felt he deserved and refused to share them with anyone. Ted also dreamed of marrying a beautiful co-ed who would reflect well on his position in whatever career he chose. Conservative women were well-groomed, and Ted Bundy found that incredibly attractive. Bundy did not generally succeed in group activities, but he excelled in politics. Most of this was due to his charming yet aggressive nature. His behavior represented the attitude valued by his peers in the Republican Party. And one reason why he chose to study law was that many of his peers in local politics were law students. In 1968, he worked at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. He also attended the Republican National Convention in Miami. In 1972, Bundy worked for Governor Dan Evans' re-election campaign. Then he later worked for the chairman of the Washington State Republican Party, who found Bundy to be a believer in the system. By the time of his trip to California for the Republican Party, that we talked about in episode one, Bundy had been molded into 
a standard Republican Party member. In addition to his political beliefs, Ted Bundy also had some religious beliefs. Louise Bundy had been proud to pass down her family's traditional Protestant Christian beliefs by taking Ted with her to a Methodist church. In fact, they attended First Methodist Church in Tacoma for many years together. The practice of Methodism generally involves a very low-key, basic service that focuses squarely on one's relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no fervor, nor is there any loud singing with any feeling or emotion. Sermons are very matter-of-fact, and songs are basic and devoid of emotion. Louise connected with the relaxed social aspect of the Methodist Church and wanted her children to share that with her. Much to her dismay, when Ted moved to Salt Lake City in August 1975, he converted to Mormonism. That said, he never followed the restrictions of the church put on its members and wasn't active in the LDS community. It's likely he wanted to fit in socially with all of his Mormon peers in Salt Lake City. Though Louise found his friends very kind, especially during his Utah trial for kidnapping, she didn't approve of Bundy's conversion. Perhaps she felt the Mormon church was far too exclusionary and strict, or perhaps she was just traditional and didn't want Ted to associate with people whose idea were different than hers. All was not lost for Louise, though. In 1976, after her son's conviction for kidnapping, he was excommunicated from the LDS church. Interestingly enough, he later stated that he was never able to follow or retain any of the dogma in any aspect of the church life. Bundy moved to Salt Lake City to attend law school at the University of Utah Law School in late summer of 1974. Another reason for this move was because the police were starting to link his crimes around the Seattle area, as well as a couple of his murders in Oregon. He also had a connection to the area through Liz's parents, who lived less than an hour away in Ogden, Utah. He would often stop by their house for home-cooked meals. And the final reason Bundy moved to Salt Lake City is that the University of Utah was the only law school who accepted him after he got only mediocre scores on the LSAT. Despite attending classes and diving into his schoolwork, he found he couldn't keep up. He started to become distracted by his addiction to murder, and he began skipping classes. And it wouldn't be long before he would immerse himself completely into his favorite pastime. He even joked during an interview that he had actually received a PhD in serial killing. On the evening of October 2nd, 1974, six-year-old Nancy Wilcox was walking in a holiday Utah neighborhood alone after purchasing a pack of gum at a convenience store. Ted saw her and pulled his car to the side of the road. The roads were dark and abandoned. He noted that the young woman was walking by an orchard, and he quickly planned his attack. He ran up behind her, brandished a knife, and grabbed her by the arm. Bundy talked the young woman into following him. Then he pushed her off the sidewalk into the darkened orchard. She argued with him, but he managed to silence her. Nancy told him she didn't believe he'd do anything to her as he struggled to remove her clothing. She fought back and verbally refused his advances. Ted had told himself before the attack that his attentions weren't going to involve murder. He was simply going to rape the woman and then let her go. However, she began shouting, and while panicking, he strangled her to death. He moved her body to a corner of the orchard where she would be out of sight, but he became extremely anxious. Ted got into his car and drove home, but he started to wonder whether or not his victim was dead. Once he got home, Ted worried that he may have been sloppy or careless and left evidence behind, and he returned to the crime scene. Ted found Nancy's body after searching for a while and becoming disoriented. He removed everything incriminating from the crime scene that he could find, including her clothing. Bundy admitted to burying her body near Capitol Reef National Park, 200 miles south of Holiday but her body has never been found. 17-year-old Melissa Smith, the daughter of a Midvale, Utah police officer, vanished on October 18, 1974. She had left a pizza place after visiting with a friend, and she planned to go to a slumber party 
after that. Melissa tended to be a very cautious person, even though she lived in a relatively safe Mormon town. Her father, a police officer, had raised all of his kids to be safety conscious, but at five foot three, she was easy prey for the much taller, stronger Bundy. Melissa's nude body was found on October 28, 1974 in Summit Park, near Salt Lake City. She had been strangled, raped, sodomized, and bludgeoned. The medical examiner determined that she may have been kept alive for up to seven days after her disappearance. This is another murder that Bundy would confess to shortly before his execution. 17-year-old Laura Aim was abducted on October 31, 1974, after leaving a coffee shop in the early morning hours in Lehigh, Utah. When she left the coffee shop, she was headed towards a nearby park. Laura was something of a drifter after she dropped out of high school. Though she spoke with her parents daily, she wasn't missed until four days after Halloween. Laura's six-foot-tall nude body was found by passing hikers nine miles from American Fort Canyon in the Wasatch Mountains on Thanksgiving Day. Her body was found on a riverbank. She had been bludgeoned with a crowbar or pry bar, then sexually assaulted and finally strangled. Laura's face had been beaten so severely that she was no longer recognizable. Her blood alcohol level indicated that she had been drinking, but she wasn't incapacitated. Bundy later stated that he kept some of the women's bodies with him for some time and applied makeup to them and washed their hair, and he had done this in Laura's case. By this point in time, Bundy was a confident, competent killer. But on November 8th, 1974, he would slip up. 18-year-old Carol Durant left her job to shop for a birthday present at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. As she stood in front of a bookstore, Ted approached her and identified himself as a police detective. He asked if she had a car parked near Sears in the mall parking lot. She told him that she did, and he asked her to follow him to her car. So you know more that Bundy had to have been watching Carol Durant to know which car was hers and to know that it was parked near Sears. He told Carol that he had noticed a man trying to break into cars outside of the mall. Carol followed him, and she determined that nothing had been taken from her car. Ted identified himself as Officer Roseland, and he told Carol that even though nothing had been taken from her car, she would still need to file a police report. And he tried to trick Carol into believing that the back door of a laundromat was a police substation. But as Ted tried to open this back door to the laundromat, it was locked. And he scrambled and told Carol that his partner had not left the door unlocked. Carol was getting uneasy, but she wasn't ready to challenge the man yet. She asked him for identification, and he flipped open a detective's badge quickly and returned it to his pocket. Ted told her to get into his undercover police car, which was a tan VW Bug, and he would drive her to the local police station. Carol reluctantly agreed to get in the car, but she refused to put on her seatbelt. She started to panic when he drove past the turn to the nearest police station. In a fury, he quickly locked the car and stopped abruptly in a secluded area. He held a gun to her and told her to allow him to put handcuffs on her. Ted was able to get one of the cuffs around her left wrist, but she began to struggle. It caused him to miss her right wrist and lock the other cuff around her left wrist again. Carol opened the door and ran out into the road, flagging down a passing car. She got a ride to the actual police station. Bundy took off before he could be discovered. Police took her statement and removed the handcuffs to hold as evidence. She later told the makers of a crime documentary, I knew he was going to kill me and nobody was ever going to know what happened to me. Later that same night in Bountiful, Utah, a pretty 17-year-old named Deborah Kent was attending a play at her high school with her parents. She was an attractive girl with dark brown hair and big eyes. 
After dropping off her brother at a skating rink, she headed to the high school auditorium to meet her parents. Her father had recently had a heart attack that had prevented him from going out. But he was very interested in attending this play. For one thing, he wanted a chance to get out of the house. Debbie offered to pick up her brother after the play so that her parents could take their time, catch up with some people at the high school. She was supposed to bring her brother back to the high school to meet them. She walked to her car in the dark parking lot at 10.30 p.m. Witnesses heard screaming coming from the parking lot between 10.30 and 11 p.m. that night. Some of them walked outside to see if they could determine the source of the noise, but didn't hear anything else. Debbie's parents waited until midnight for her to bring her brother back to the school, but Debbie didn't return, and her brother was still waiting to be picked up from the skating rink. Debbie's parents called the Bountiful Police to report her disappearance. Local law enforcement was already familiar with a series of recent kidnappings in the area. Another student's father also contacted police to turn in a small handcuff key he found in the parking lot. This key was later matched to the handcuffs on Carol Durant's wrist. No other physical evidence was located, but several witnesses who had been in the auditorium before the play told police that a nervous, dark-haired man had been wandering around, approaching young women. These witnesses would go on to pick Ted out of a lineup as being the suspicious individual they saw that night. It's believed that Ted Bundy, extremely frustrated by his failure to subdue Carol DeRanche earlier in the day, kidnapped Debbie Kent that night to satisfy his desires. Debbie's body was never found, but Ted Bundy did confess to murdering her. Young 23-year-old mother Nancy Baird was kidnapped in Utah in July of 1975. She was last seen working at a gas station in East Layton, Utah on July 4th. Her car was still in the parking lot and her personal belongings were still in the gas station. Now, Ted Bundy has denied any involvement in her murder, but he is definitely suspected in this one. She was his type. She was petite and she had long, straight hair. Nancy's body was never found. But it does make you wonder, if Bundy did murder Nancy Baird, why would he confess to some crimes, but not to others? And if he was being honest, does that mean that some of the crimes he suspected of were really the work of a different killer? In 1975, Bundy began taking trips from Utah to Colorado to find a new hunting ground. In January, after running a double room in the Wildwood Inn in Snowmass Village near Aspen, Bundy murdered 23-year-old Karen Campbell. Karen was a registered nurse from Michigan, visiting Colorado with her fiancé, Raymond Gadowski, for a medical convention slash vacation. Raymond brought his two children along to encourage the family to enjoy their time together. They stayed at the Wildwood Inn in the Snowmass Ski Community, 12 miles from Aspen. Both Karen and Raymond were avid skiers. Karen left Raymond downstairs and returned to their room for a copy of Viva magazine. She was seen by at least three people, but never made it to her room. The magazine was later found with Karen's belongings. It's believed that Ted Bundy faked an illness near his room and was able to overpower Karen. Since she was a nurse, she might have tried to come to his assistance. It's believed that Bundy grabbed her, assaulted her in his room, and then murdered her. Her naked body was found frozen 36 days later in a field 2.8 miles from Snowmass. Animals had already gotten to her body. The coroner established that she died from a brain injury due to blunt force trauma to the head, leaving distinctive linear groove depressions in her skull. Her body bore deep cuts from a sharp weapon. 100 miles from Snowmass in Vail, Colorado, 26-year-old Julie Cunningham was walking from her apartment to a dinner date, but she would never make this dinner date. On March 15th, she was approached by a man on crutches who asked her to carry his ski boots to his car. This was typical Ted Bundy MO. Julie was beaten, then handcuffed, she was sexually assaulted and strangled in a secluded area 
90 miles away from where she was abducted. Bundy returned to her remains weeks later to spend time with her body, but her body was never found. On April 6th, 24-year-old Denise Oliverson went missing while riding her bike in Grand Junction. She was on her way to her parents' house, but never arrived. Denise's bike and sandals were later found under the 5th Street Bridge in Grand Junction. Her body is still missing, but police believe that Ted Bundy is responsible for her murder after he confessed to dumping a body in a river five miles west of Grand Junction. Just one month later, Bundy picked up 12-year-old Lynette Culver, who had been hitchhiking near her junior high school in Pocatello, Idaho. He admitted picking her up and taking her back to his hotel room. He drowned her in the room's bathtub, then sexually assaulted her. He later admitted he threw her body in the nearby Snake River, but no evidence has ever been found. And more if we have to talk about how young this victim was, 12 years old. This was a major departure from the normal age range of Ted Bundy's victims. On August 16, 1975, Ted Bundy was arrested in Granger, Utah, for evading capture from a local police officer. In the report, Robert Hayward explains details of Bundy's capture, including the burglary tools found in his car. Mention of his missing passenger seat is also included. And the incident report reads as follows. Type of incident, attempt to evade. Reporting, Sergeant Robert A. Hayward, Division Special Operations. At about 2.30 a.m. on Saturday morning, August 16, 1975, a gray Volkswagen went by me while I was sitting in my patrol car in front of my house. I looked at the license plate and did not recognize it. About 10 minutes later, as I was going up Brock Street in Granger, a car took off northbound on Brock Street at a high rate of speed. I was in pursuit at a high rate of speed. We ran the stop sign at Brock and LeMay and again at the entrance to the 35th South off Brock Street. I had the red spotlight on him when he ran the stop sign at Brock and LeMay, but he just went as fast as possible. I pulled up on him fast, and he pulled over into a gas station. He produced his driver's license, which identified him to be Theodore Robert Bundy, 565 First Avenue, Salt Lake City, Utah, date of birth 112446. The man was wearing dark pants, a dark turtleneck with long sleeves and sneakers. He stated that he was lost in the subdivision, but he had been there and again came back in about 10 minutes. I looked in the front seat and there was not a seat on the passenger side. So I looked a little closer and discovered the front seat was lying in the back seat on its side. On the floor were some tools such as a jimmy bar about 14 inches long. I called for a county car to come over and they sent a deputy and a sergeant. They talked to Mr. Bundy and he told them he had been out west to the drive-in theater to see the towering inferno. We checked at the theater and that movie was not playing. So then he said that he was lost. The deputies looked in the car and asked if there was a gun in it. I said not to my knowledge, but that I had not looked that closely and perhaps we should check further. After that, they came up with a few other items of interest that a person coming from a movie normally would not carry, such as an ice pick, a pair of handcuffs, silk stockings with holes cut in for the eyes and nose, and other items that a burglar might carry. They called for a detective car and Deputy Andrak came over and took the items into custody. We impounded the car, and I took Mr. Bundy to the county jail and booked him on the charge of attempting to evade a police officer. The time of booking was approximately 3.30 a.m. Ted Bundy is quoted in describing his Utah arrest. All I wanted to do was get home. I started off, and it was at that point I saw lights in my rearview mirror. I turned... And they turned, and all of a sudden, I didn't feel right. It didn't look right to me. I turned again, and it turned again. 
and it was clear that the car was following me. I really had no idea why, and so I was just going to try to get away from it. I was very nervous. After the first or second turn, I got rid of what little dope was left in the bag, and I was headed for what looked like an intersection. The light was red, and the car was still following me. I went through the red light and turned on to what was obviously a main drag. I looked in the mirror as the car was coming around the corner, and then there was this bright red glow on the side. That's the first I saw of that red light. It wasn't flashing. There were no sirens, nothing. At that point, it dawned on me that I had something unusual on my hands. That information about the arrest comes from Stephen Mashad's book, The Only Living Witness. At the police station, Bundy told Detective Jerry Thompson that he had never been to Colorado. But when his apartment was searched, police found a map of Colorado, a Chevron gas credit card, and a Colorado ski country brochure. Bundy mentioned that a friend gave him the Colorado brochure and marked the Wildwood Inn as a suggestion of a good place to stay. Thompson ran a credit card check on the gas card and determined that it had been used several times near Snowmass and Aspen, Colorado. And some of these charges on the credit card weren't really that large. And it would come out later that Bundy was apparently obsessed with keeping a full tank of gas. Thompson also noted that he found a brochure advertising the school play at Debbie Kent's high school. So this connected Bundy to Debbie Kent's kidnapping, but also to Carol Durant's attempted kidnapping. However, this didn't lead to any new charges for Ted, and police were unable to keep him. They released him with the understanding that he would return for a lineup in the Carol Durant case. Liz contacted the police department in Salt Lake City in December 1974 after reports of missing women were published. Jerry Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Liz about her suspicions. She told him she found crutches, plaster of Paris, and a meat cleaver they never used in her house. She also once found an unexplained bag full of women's clothes in her house. Liz told the detective about a time when she suggested cutting her hair and Ted flew into a rage. He would use a flashlight under the covers at night to stare at her body. Bundy kept a lug wrench taped in the trunk of her car, another light-colored VW bug. One thing Liz couldn't give Thompson was an alibi for Bundy on any of the nights of the Pacific Northwest killings. Prior to his police lineup, the FBI, who were now engaged in his potential cross-country crime spree, found out that he sold his VW Bug to a teenager. They went, they found it, and they immediately impounded the car. Hairs microscopically similar to Melissa Smith and Carol Durant were found in the trunk, despite Bundy having thoroughly washed the car prior to selling it. On October 2nd, 1975, Bundy stood in a police lineup with seven other individuals, all of whom were policemen. Carol Durange picked Bundy out of the lineup and identified him as Officer Roseland. Several witnesses from the Bountiful High School also picked him out of the lineup as the man lurking around the auditorium. But there wasn't enough evidence to link him to Deborah Kent's murder. But police definitely had enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault against Carol Durange. In November of 1975, Jerry Thompson from Utah, Bob Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado met in Aspen, Colorado to compare notes with 30 other investigators about various murders in their jurisdictions. Though it was clear that not enough evidence was available at that time, officials felt that Bundy was the man that they were seeking to clear their cases. Bob Keppel was raised in Spokane and graduated from Washington State University. He was instrumental in bringing an end to the Ted murders. He began working on the Lake Sammamish murders as a rookie officer and later narrowed the list of suspects named Ted who owned VW Bug cars down 
to only 25 names. He confronted Bundy about his suspicions, but Bundy dismissed him and refused to talk. Later, while Ted was on death row in Florida, Keppel received a letter asking to consult with the police about the Green River killings. When the detective asked Bundy how he could help the Green River Task Force, Bundy said that he knew a lot about murder. Keppel had a series of interviews with Ted that led to an increased understanding of the mind of a serial killer. These also may have led to Bundy confessing to several unknown murders that he committed. Keppel's interviews with Bundy inspired Thomas Harris to write The Silence of the Lambs. And Keppel even consulted with the FBI on the movie that starred Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. He currently teaches at both Seattle University and via teleconference at Sam Houston University. Jerry Thompson was a Salt Lake County Sheriff's Homicide Detective who worked the Bundy case after his 1975 arrest. The Bundy case was the only one in my life where all the evidence uncovered was positive, all pointing at Ted, Thompson said. I don't know of any negatives. He acknowledged that Bundy didn't appear to be a killer because he was clean-cut and looked like an average citizen. And you know he never denied the killings to me directly. All he ever said was, I refuse to answer that. I mean, you accuse most people of murder, and they go stark raving crazy. There's no doubt in my mind he did it. He's capable of doing anything. He was also certain that Bundy killed because he enjoyed killing, as opposed to killing victims just to silence them. Michael Fisher was the lead investigator on the Karen Campbell case in Colorado. When he questioned Bundy, he noticed that the suspect shook as he spoke. And apparently Bundy said, well, you know what I did? I had somebody else over there and I didn't want my girlfriend to know. And to Fisher, this indicated that Bundy truly was guilty of the young woman's murder. He didn't even try to offer any type of alibi. If he had, Fisher might have returned to Colorado without any further suspicion. But Bundy couldn't do it. This really was the beginning of the end for Ted Bundy, but not before Bundy would unleash some of his most brutal rage yet. I'd like to announce that the attorneys representing Mr. Bundy have decided that they do not want another bond hearing. So he will be held without bond. We have received a hold order from Colorado and Salt Lake City, Utah. Bundy is being guarded in a second floor cell and last night was taken out for another session with Tallahassee Detective Sergeant Ben Rosar. We've heard his life story, said Rosar. He's telling us everything, but what we want to know, I'm holding my breath. What they want to know about is the January 15th strangling of two co-eds and the beatings of three others here at the Chi Omega Sorority House on the Florida State University campus. Bundy is the prime suspect because of the nature of the murders, brutal sexual assaults. Many of the 21 credit cards Bundy had with him were stolen in Sherrod's, a bar next to the Chi Omega sorority on Jefferson Avenue. Ted Bundy had lived here at the Oaks Rooming House just shortly after he came to Tallahassee, apparently the first week in January. He used the name Chris Hagen and said he was a graduate student from Ann Arbor, Michigan. So more, I think this is the perfect spot to wrap up episode two of our Ted Bundy season. We've got a lot more in store for everyone as we continue to cover this case. If you like the show, please take a moment to go out and give us a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. And if you'd like to find us on social media, we're on Facebook. Just search Criminology Podcast. You can also discuss the case and the podcast in our Facebook discussion group by searching Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. We're also on Twitter with the handle at CriminologyPod. And if you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to the show on whatever app you listen to your podcasts on. That way you ensure that you don't miss a single episode. So with that, Morph and I will be back next week to continue the story of Ted Bundy. We'll see you then.